As you're returning back to your seats, I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me to Psalm 4. Psalm 4. Last time together we introduced Psalm 4 as we're going through uh, these psalms. And so we're going to again find our place in Psalm chapter 4. And I pray that you'll put your eyes in the Word of God and the text with me. And uh, we'll read it together. And then by the Lord's grace we will complete Psalm chapter 4 here this evening. Psalm chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. The psalmist begins to the chief musician with the stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness? And seek falsehood, Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. This is the reading of God's precious and holy word for us, his people. Last time together as we introduced both not only chapter four, 3 of Psalms, but now as we come to Psalm 4, we asked this question as we broached the study. And we asked this question, in what area of our lives, in what area of your life do you need to put your trust in God? Yes, in general, you trust in the Lord. You would say, as the people of God, He is the God of my salvation, as David calls Him here. But still, we all know that in our everyday living, in our sanctification, in our walk in this journey of grace, as we are enrolled in the never-ending school of faith, if you will, if you're a child of God, you are in the school of faith, and that continues as long as you are alive here on this earth. But what places and what areas and what crevices of your life are you struggling to put your trust in God? I was talking to a dad today who was talking about that his daughter is reaching uh, driving age, she's got the certain qualifications, and he's just really struggling with the fact that she's driving. And a part of our conversation was just that thing. For him, he would say, uh, admittedly, where I'm struggling to trust this God who I love to sing about, sing his praises, to talk about, but yet I find mysteriously in my life, I find it hard to trust him here, right here in this particular area. What is that for you? For David, he's continuing to walk through this journey, if you will, of growing in the things of the Lord. He is the reigning king. And our title here for Psalm chapter 4 is Quiet Confidence. Quiet Confidence. And the people of God are distinguished with, with this attribute, you could say. A quiet confidence in the Lord, their God. Learning to trust him in, through the topography of life, through the different changes of life. As we age, as we grow, through the different facets and the joys and the pains of trusting God in every facet 
of life. So that's why we get our theme here, this quiet confidence. In fact, Proverbs 14, 26 describes it like this. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. That strength does not come from age. That strength does not come from personality. That strength comes from the Lord. It comes from the fear of the Lord. And so the theme of this psalm, Psalm chapter 4, is this. God hears his children, and God gives rest to his children. Friends, do you experience the reality that God hears and answers prayer? Number one, and do you experience the rest that he gives to those who rest and trust in him with absolute humility and faith. Last time together, we introduced Psalm chapter 4, and we looked at David's request. We looked at his first aspect of this request as he calls out to God boldly. This is a song of David. That's what the superscription tells us. This is a song that David has written for all time for the church of God, for the people of Israel. But here, David starts boldly, and like someone driving a, a stick shift car, I love to drive a good manual car. My first car was a Honda Civic, and that thing was so fun to drive. I need to get back to that. In this psalm, as you read through it, David shifts between talking to God, talking to himself, and talking to the proverbial people in his life that he's leading. He, he speaks boldly, he speaks passionately, and he speaks lovingly. He shifts, and we'll see that all throughout the psalm. In this first one, he says there, David's request, God, answer me. Hear me, O God, when I, when I call out to you. And he appeals to God's character. And friends, it's a reminder to us as we come to God, as we came to him just a few moments ago in prayer, we come to him based upon his righteousness and not our own righteousness. And that's what we've been studying in a number of our passages of Scripture and our Bible studies, the righteousness of God as applied to, to our account. David here knows that his God is able to answer him when he calls as opposed to, say, the God of the Canaanites, the moody gods, the capricious gods of the Philistines. And here David appeals to the character of God. He says, O God of my righteousness. This speaks of identity. This is foundational. Friends, it's just a reminder to all of us and those that may be visiting with us tonight, when we approach God, we don't come boldly, as Hebrews tells us to do, based upon our merit or based upon our performance or based upon anything that we do. As we saw Sunday morning, we come because of what Christ has done for us, not in order to. If you remember that distinction that we close Sunday morning with, that's exactly what David does here. David makes his request. He calls out to prayer to the Lord. In a great time of trial, and he speaks of identity here, he approaches God based upon the righteousness that has been put upon his account. Now Christ, of course, the, the second David, the true and better David, has not come yet, but he will come. And that's what David is trusting in. That's what David is hoping in. In the same way that you and I look back to what Christ has done, David has already looked forward and believed the promise, just like Abraham, when the Holy Spirit, when God came to Abraham and preached to him the gospel, and Abraham believed, Romans 3 tells us, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And that is why David comes to God and says, hear me when I pray, hear me when I cry out to you, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Friends, our God is a holy God, and if we're to come to him in any, any form, shape, or way, we must come to him by the righteousness of Christ. And we are made righteous in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become, notice here, the righteousness of God in him. 
And so David reminds us here both by modeling and by action that this is the basis of our prayer life with God. Our relationship with God is the righteousness of Christ. David says, answer me because you are the righteous God. Then a second aspect we see here of David's request as we looked at last time as well. David rehearses God's past provisions of grace. Look there in verse 1. He says, you have relieved me in my distress. David has a history of God's faithfulness, of God's relief coming to him in just the nick of time. And David here, as we saw the background last time, is experiencing a couple different things. It's believed there's a great time of economic turmoil in David's reign. Things are not sure. Things are not solid. People are saying, where's the supply chains? Why are things slow to get here? Doesn't that sound familiar? Inflation is taking place. We're heading towards a cliff. We're heading towards a recession. And so the people begin to grumble. They begin to complain. And as is often the case, those that mock him, those that mock God, take this as a platform opportunity to make great uh, criticism against the king and also against the God of the king. And David is human. David takes these things to heart. David is wearing them. David is struggling with them. In fact, David's life has been one of marked by suffering and sorrow. And as we see time and time again, as we saw last time as well, David rehearses the things of God. David encourages himself in the Lord. Friends, where do you get your comfort from? Where do you get your assurance from? Are you someone who's constantly needing pats on the back uh, from people? Do you need the verbal praises and affirmations of people that go beyond what is normal and, and natural to, to the point of sin? David had to deal with this. David comes to God and he rehearses God's past provisions of grace. He obviously is not finding his, his identity in anything around him because things are not going well. We can remember count and recount times of when God sent people to provide food, shelter, and clothing. And they all came at the hand of God to provide for him. And so David rehearses God's past grace, and this strengthens his heart. It strengthens his heart knowing that he can trust God for present grace and future grace. Isn't that the way it is, friends? We are walking with God, and yet we still struggle to trust him. And all we have to do is to rehearse and review. Remember the times that God has provided, that God is righteous. He's a loving Father. We pray to Him as our Heavenly Father, and He hears and He answers our prayer. And by the way, we never outgrow this need of rehearsing the graces, the mercies of God. Until we are glorified in heaven one day, removed from the presence of sin, this is the prayer of God's people. Every Wednesday night as we gather, let's not act like we're not praying this. Lord, I need help. Lord, I need clarity. Lord, I need answers. How do I know he, you will provide it, O oh God? Just simply turn and review. Turn and review what the Lord has done. And friends, if you have nothing to review, and I don't say this snarkily or in a way that's meant to be, you know, whatever, it could be you don't know the Lord. If the Lord doesn't hear and answer your, your prayer, if you have nothing of praises on your prayer sheet, are you truly a child of the King? Do you truly know Him? Is that why you're putting stock into what people think uh, exorbitantly? And on these counts, the God of His righteousness, past grace, present grace, future grace, that He knows God will provide, He calls out to the Lord, verse 2, and He says, Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. 
In Psalm 1, we see that David is the righteous man. He's the righteous king in Psalm 2. But here, these themes of a sinner being saved by God's wonderful grace are what he's rehearsing. He's rehearsing God's mercy and his favor towards him. And by the way, the tenor here is an evening psalm. David is preparing for bed or maybe even laying in bed. David is troubled. He's finding sleep is not easy. It's not coming to him easily. Do you ever find yourself there, friends? I do. Do you ever find yourself to where your body is tired, but your mind will not shut off? David is here. He's troubled. He's struggling to go to sleep. And where others will turn to substance abuse or other things, pills, to to try to find some relief, David models for us what the child of God does. He he turns to theology. The child of God turns to theology and strength for help. Listen, friends, theology is for the children of God. Theology is for the women of God. Theology is for the men of God. Theology is for the church. What is theology? Theology is simply the knowledge and study of God. And what David is doing here is he turns to what he knows to be true about God. This knowledge, this theology of what he knows about God sustains him, feeds him, and grows him. So David knows that God will act righteously and that he will give relief. So this is how David begins his prayer. And there's a principle for us here. Everything begins with God. Begin with God. Run to God. Praise him for who he is. Remind yourself for what he has done. And friends, this will inform what and who you're talking to. The reason most people don't pray as they ought is they don't respect God as they ought. They don't think God can actually do anything about their problem. They think they can fix their problem. They they try to do that. And they start calling the phone lines and they start trying to do their best efforts, their best wisdom, and their best uh, scheming, if you will. But the true children of God know that they need God to work and to act for them. They begin with God. They say, God, help me, just like you have in the past. Secondly, in verses 2 and 3, we see David's rebuke. And this is where David shifts from his knowledge of God, speaking to God. And David shifts here to a rebuke to those who are wicked. This is a renowned wickedness. This is not an assumed wickedness. These are those who are on the record, if you will. This is what's on the front page of the papers. These are the uh, anonymous sources that are out there. This is the word on the street. David's losing it. David has no, is no longer fit to be king. David doesn't know what he's doing anymore. So David rebukes these people, unnamed sources, if you will, these people in the kingdom. And before he speaks to them, he starts with God. Now he shifts his focus and he addresses his, his critics, his foes, if you will. Now these foes not only are criticizing him, but it's not even so much about that as much as they continue on to reject the reign of God, the kingship of of Yahweh. The name of the Lord Yahweh is mentioned over five times in verses three through eight here in this passage. Ultimately, they are against God. And this is who David shifts his focus to. Now, Psalm three addressed his physical danger that he was concerned about. Here, Psalm four addresses personal slander. And so he challenges them. He begins to pray for them boldly. And he begins to challenge them to turn in repentance of sin and to trust Yahweh, to trust the Lord. Friends, those who are seemingly or chiefly the worst critics against the Lord, those are the ones who God delights in saving. Those are the ones that God delights in making trophies of his 
grace. For some of you, you were a, a bold sinner. You, you weren't just a morally righteous sinner resting in your good works and your merit and all of those things, but you were a renowned sinner. And God delighted in saving you and bringing you to himself. And David knows this. So David asks this question in the form of rebuke. He says this, how long? Now, this is a theme of David. This is a question that David loves to ask. How long, for example, will you seek after that which is vain? How long, O Lord, David will often say, will you wait? So the first part we see here of David's rebuke is this. How long will you seek after that which is vain? How long, you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? Now here, what they love is gossip, vain words, they, they seek after lies. Proverbs says that vain words and the righteous man who, when he hears it, is like there, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Well, these people are the wood for someone else's fire. That fire just keeps raging. Did you hear? Someone said, this is what's taking place. David begins to hear these. And he asked them this question, how long will you pursue after? Will you feed upon lies and Vanity. Verse 2, how long will you love worthlessness and delusions? How long will you seek after false God? In other words, what David is saying is the reason you seek after these things is because you don't know God. You don't fear the Lord. How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? So he exhorts them to avoid that which is shameful. The second part of David's rebuke that we find here in the text is that he, he exhorts them to claim that which is sure. Right in the middle of this rebuke, interestingly enough, David pulls out a key doctrine regarding the salvation of the people of God. He exhorts them to consider this. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 6, if you remember, David has already shown us and taught us that the way of the ungodly shall perish but the way of the righteous is sure and lasting and set apart unto God. And so David pulls out this doctrine of salvation, this theological truth. Verse 3, he says, But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. He's already established this godliness where it comes from. The Lord has set apart his godly ones. The Lord will then hear when I call to him. Now, in chapter 3, verse 8, as we're just kind of coming through the, the Psalms, he's already brought up this doctrine once before. Chapter 3, verse 8, salvation, he said, belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Interestingly enough, David is not afraid of this doctrine of God's election, the doctrine of God's salvation, as he's rebuking and exhorting these sinners. He's calling them to examine themselves. He's calling them to consider their ways. And here, in the middle of this text... This glorious gem shines of God's calling sinners to himself. Verse 3, he delights in the fact that the Lord has set apart for himself the godly. Spurgeon says this, Because God chose to love us, he cannot help but choose to hear us. God has called and set apart the godly as his own peculiar treasure. So this is the confidence that David has. David's taking his confidence in the Lord, the fact the Lord will hear him, the God of his salvation, and he's asking them to consider the same as well. David's rebuke. Then as we move through the chapter, moving into verses 4 and 5, we see David then give some exhortations to obedience. These are commands by David to his enemies, to those who will hear. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is David's 
rebuttal. And he begins there in verse 4 with this command to search their hearts. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. David himself sounds like he's teaching and preaching to his own heart as he's preaching to others as well. He gives this, this command, be angry and yet not to the point of sin. Be agitated, but do not sin against the Lord. You know, we're, we're emotional beings, aren't we? We live in an emotional world. We often respond not in the spirit, but we often respond in the emotions, in the flesh. Proverbs has much to say about guarding our hearts, guarding our tongues, guarding our life. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of your heart flow the issues of life. So what we see here is that David is guarding his own heart, exhorting others as well, be angry and yet do not sin. Now this famous verse is quoted again by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. And it's so famous that Paul again uses it in the book of Ephesians there. Literally, it means tremble, but yet do not sin. Bite your tongue. Be in control of yourself. Be controlled by the Spirit. The Holman Christian Standard Version goes on to say, On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. David says there's times of frustration when you hear the criticisms of people. Don't take it personally. Bring it before the Lord. Rest. Be still. Get quiet before the Lord. This is, you could call the, whereas the overarching aspect here is David is writing a song. This is David's prayer. Those are spiritual disciplines that are present here. There's also, this is another spiritual discipline that he's bringing up, and it's the spiritual discipline of solitariness. Get alone. Friends, how rarely do we do this today? We're never alone. There's always busyness. There's always our phones. There's always noise. There's always our acquaintances. In fact, we could ask the question, how often do we follow David's example here? People, studies tell us, and experts say, and we have our own uh, behavioral practices to know. We'll take their phones to their bed. They'll wake up first thing in the morning, check their phones, and all throughout the night they'll check their phones. And the point is not phones. The point is being alone, turning the world off, silence, communing with God. That's what David is exhorting us to do. In fact, he says, Selah. In other words, stop, pause, and think about that. Verse 4, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Then verse 5, David gives the command, offer the sacrifices of righteousness to the Lord. In other words, offer with a right heart, right sacrifices. Submit your need to the Lord. Bow to the throne of God. Psalm 51 verse 17 reminds us, David teaches there as well. He says, the sacrifice that is pleasing to God is a broken spirit. In other words, a humble and a sincere spirit. The sacrifice is not a blessing or appeasing to God if your heart is not engaged with it. And that's what we were talking about on Sunday morning. The purpose of fasting. Why do we fast? It's not the ritual of fasting. Fasting is not the end. It's the means to an end. Sacrifices are not the end. They're a, they're a means to the end. And our righteous God, the God of our salvation, who sees all things, sees our hearts. That's what David remembers up in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit, O God? Where There's not even a tongue in my mind, a word in my mind or on my tongue. Before I even speak it, O God, you already know it. So David concludes, if you remember Psalm 139, so search me, O God, try me, 
know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. And that's what he exhorts the people here to do as well. He comes to God and says, humble yourself, be sincere, don't be conformed, as Paul says, to this world, but be transformed in the renewing and the hidden man of your heart. And then lastly, in verses 6 through 8, we see David's relief. David's relief. It's almost as if David is now ready to sleep. David has talked about sleep. He will bring it up here again. But there is a relief that begins to take place. And friends, it's just a reminder to us that prayer brings about spiritual relief, spiritual therapy, but also there's a physiological therapy. How many of you can, and I don't know, I'm not asking you to necessarily do anything, but in your own remembrance, you've been, you've been frustrated, you've been tense, you've, been, you've, you've laid in bed and you realize, I'm struggling to sleep, and you got out of your bed and you read your Bible and you prayed, and then seemingly on the other side of that, it's like now, I've given, taken my burden to the Lord, and I've left it there, and then he has given me sleep. This is David's relief. And so he calls out to the Lord, beginning there in verse 6, he says, There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. In other words, David says, favor us, favor me with your goodness. There are those who are criticizing David, and one of the things they're saying is, is where is any good going to come from? Where is there going to be any blessing? Where is there going to be money or the economy going to be righted again? How does David respond? He responds with a simple and a direct prayer of blessing. He calls out and says, let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. Now, if you're listening carefully, that sounds familiar. Before I get there, I want to just say something. What David's modeling for us. What is David doing here? David is praying a prayer of blessing over his enemies. Friends, do you ever do that? What, what do you do with those who criticize you? Now, we're not David, and we don't have a king, and we're not the king and the ruler, but in our own lives, when we face certain types of things, how do you process that? What does David do? Well, David here models for us. He prays blessing over them. How do you pray for the difficult people in your life? Pray for them. Ask God to save them. If they're part of the bride of Christ, ask God to bless them. You know what you'll begin to find is your heart changes towards them. Your heart begins to have a love for them. Your heart begins to be enlarged. Situations that are crushing to you, God will use to open you up and strengthen you and stretch you out and pour in His grace. And you'll begin to have the heart of God praying for, quote-unquote, the difficult people in your life, or as Matt, Jesus describes them in Matthew, your enemies. And when you pray for your enemies, you are most like Christ. And that's exactly what David does here. Now, the reason that sounds familiar is this is the ironic benediction, the one that we often read at the end of a, a Sunday morning or a Lord's Day morning here together. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26, we read it Sunday. Just to quote it in your hearing, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord give you favor and give you peace. And this is what David does. He asks for favor from the Lord, and he also prays for it over the people. Then secondly, he asks the Lord to fill him with joy. Verse 7, you have put gladness in my heart. And he describes it in the contrast of when the land is overflowing with grain and wine, the people's hearts are full, people are merry, people are happy. But he says, Lord, fill me with your joy. Fill me with your gladness. Put it in my heart that is more than when the circumstances are like, like this. 
Calvin says the sum of this is this, that he had more satisfaction in seeing the reconciled countenance of God poured out upon him, beaming upon him, than if he had possessed garners full of corn and cellars full of wine. And then the third thing that we close with here this evening there in verse 8 is this. He, he describes it and asks the Lord to flood him with his peace. Now verse 8 says this. He says, I will both lie down in peace. This is a resolve. I will both lie down in peace and I will sleep. For you alone, O Lord, cause me, make me to dwell in safety. Now here again, David invokes this aspect of sleep. If you remember, going back to chapter 3, is the first time that we've seen he, he mentioned it. And David mentions it going back to verse 3, and I'm trying to find it, I don't have it in my notes here. But he brings up sleep and describes how the Lord has given him sleep. And uh, verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, I lay down and I slept, I awoke, and I found that the Lord had sustained me. In other words, David rested and trusted in the Lord. Here again, he invokes this flooding of the peace of God. He's poured out his heart in prayer. He's taken it to the God who can actually do something about it. You know what? God does do something about it. God gives him the gift of sleep. One could call, recall to mind Elijah calling out to the false prophets of Baal, saying, cry louder, cry louder. Can your God hear you? Maybe he'll hear you now. Maybe he'll hear you now. And so you can remember that, that account there in the Old Testament. Here David calls out to the God who hears and answers prayer, the God of his righteousness. And as Psalm 127 tells us, he, light, he delights and gives his beloved children the gift of sleep. Friends, let's be reminded here this evening that sleep and soul rest is a gift of God. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. Here David models for us that the humble rest in the Lord, they trust in the Lord, and God gives maybe what is the most precious gift on earth, the gift of sleep. John Piper says this, he says, sleep is a daily reminder from God that he is God and we are not. God sends us to bed as a doctor sends a sick patient to bed. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. And so, to cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless, helpless sacks of sand once a day. For others, more than once a day. Friends, aren't you thankful for the safety and security that is found in God? Spurgeon says it like this, The control and sovereignty of God for his children is a pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. We're safe. We have a sovereign God, the God of our salvation, and he gives his beloved sleep. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. And Lord, how it is timely and how it helps us. Lord, your Holy Spirit inspired this passage for us and for our learning and for our edification and for our admonition. And so, Father, we desire to be built up by it. And we do pray, Lord, that we would, of course, we're human, we can certainly imagine criticisms that we have faced or experienced in our life's past. Maybe some are going through them presently. Lord, to not over-personalize everything in their life. But Lord, to take their very real needs and burdens to the Lord, to submit them to the God of their salvation. 
Father, to pray a prayer of blessing and to exhort those who would speak against them to, in repentance and faith, turn to the Lord as well. Father, may we, like David, be modeling that in our lives. May we find your grace there as David found your grace in the hour of his great sin and sin after sin after sin did he find your grace there. Father, we too have found your grace there in our time of need when we have sinned against your holy throne. Father, thank you for the righteousness that's been given to us by Christ. The fact that we can come boldly before you and pray to you as your sons and as your daughters and have a presence and have an audience with the King. Father, even this evening, some may struggle to go to sleep this evening. And of course, we do understand that there are physiological illnesses and all types of things. Lord, we cannot fully address everything in this message, and that's not even the point. But I do pray just a prayer blessing over our congregation, Lord, that you would give us sleep this very night. You allow us to rest and to trust in our sovereign God. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.